Welcome back to For the Defense. I'm David Oscar Marcus, and today I'll be speaking with Jane Weintraub, who represented Yahweh ben Yahweh back in the 1980s. Yahweh ben Yahweh means son of God, and this was one of the craziest cases and set of facts that you will ever hear. You remember back in season one when we spoke to Roy Black about the McDuffie riots and how Miami was really suffering. Well, Yahweh ben Yahweh tried to rebuild the black community. He was even given keys to the city. He was doing so much good, but many saw him as a leader of a cult. He wore white robes, as did his followers. He ran what was called the Temple of Love. His enforcers were called death angels and were rumored to cut off the ears of enemies as trophies. There were beheadings, there were firebombings. He ended up, Yahweh ben Yahweh, being charged in both federal and state court. And in federal court, he was charged with RICO, which as we know is saved for organized crime, mafia. But they said that his religion was the enterprise here. Yahweh ben Yahweh was acquitted of most everything in federal court, but he was convicted of conspiracy and sentenced to 18 years. And although 18 years is a monster sentence, that was still seen as a loss for prosecutors because they didn't get convictions across the board, they didn't get life, and they were upset. So they brought a case in state court in Miami for first-degree murder seeking the death penalty. Enter firebrand young Jane Weintraub. She didn't represent him in federal court. She came in to represent Yahweh ben Yahweh in state court. The state's theory was not that Yahweh ben Yahweh committed the murders, but that he ordered his followers to do so. And one of those main followers was given a huge break to testify against Yahweh ben Yahweh. Let's see what happens next in For the Defense. All right, so we're here this morning with the wonderful Jane Weintraub. And there are few lawyers who can try the most grisly murder cases around the country and then switch and try the most complex white collar cases. Jane is one of a uh, handful of lawyers who can do that. This case involves the craziest set of facts. I've been talking to a lot of lawyers about a lot of cases, but this case, Jane, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks for having me. This case involves crazy, crazy facts. The name of the defendant, Yahweh ben Yahweh, means the son of God. And the case itself involves death angels, cutting off ears, temple of love, and so on. Um, So tell us a little about the, set the scene for us. We're back in the 80s. Um, You're asked to represent Yahweh ben Yahweh. Set the scene for us. Actually, it was um, Yahweh ben Yahweh came to Miami in the 80s, right after the McDuffie riots. Um, The McDuffie riots, it was a terrible time. It it was a um, black insurance agent that was killed by mercilessly by four white police officers. And of course, they were acquitted because it's a Miami case, although it was tried in Tampa. Um, We had riots. I was um, a baby prosecutor at the time, uh, growing up watching people like Roy Black in the courtroom. Um, he was a PD at the time. And when, you know, the good lawyers try cases, we ran downstairs. Anyway, Yahweh ben Yahweh saw the opportunity to come and to do good and clean up Liberty City and these horrible neighborhoods that had been hit hard by the riots. So he came and um, he bought up a bunch of real estate. He started the Temple of Love. In the 90s, in the 89, 90, I guess, 
they drew the attention of the police, the FBI. Why? You have a, an enormous amount of people that were walking around in white robes. They're very um, austere. They're very serious about their faith. They, it's a very clean life that they led, that he preached. He preached, no, you weren't allowed to do drugs, alcohol, no cheating, no uh, sleeping, with, sleeping around. There, there was no lying, no cursing. I don't know if I could make it in there. <laughs> and um, he ran a very tight ship. So he employed thousands of people because he built the Temple of Love. He built a whole apartment complex. He built a school where the children went to school, stores, supermarkets, where people from the community were employed, worked, and shopped. He built a hotel on 73rd Street and Biscayne Boulevard that was just taken down recently. Um, there was also one on the beach, I remember. He made an empire with his followers. And he was given the key to the city by Mayor Suarez at the time. Well, I was just about to ask you about that. I mean, the so there's such a dichotomy. On the one hand, he's being investigated for horrific crimes. Um, and on the other hand, he's being given the key to the city by then Mayor Suarez. Um, I mean, how are the politicians flocking to the guy? Is it because of what you say that he's doing so much good in the community, a community that was ravaged after the uh, McDuffie riots? It was ravaged and it was in need of some light and some help and some positivity. Almost sounds like today because we can sure use it now. Um, but I think he got the attention and I hate to say this, I think it was a religious persecution um, not just a religious prosecution, which, you know, of course, it became a religious prosecution. They indicted him um, and 15 other followers, and they indicted it as a RICO case and made the enterprise, the, the crux of the prosecution was the religion. The Yahweh religion was the enterprise. It was insanity to me. Um, I was not involved in the federal policy Hastings, now Representative Hastings, Congressman Hastings, um, represented Yahweh Ben Yahweh in the federal case. He was convicted of a conspiracy count, which isn't too hard to do. Um, they convicted five or six of, of the defendants of conspiracy to commit murder. Nobody was convicted on the murders. And of course, Yahweh Ben Yahweh got the most significant sentence. He was sentenced to 18 years. And I can tell you that I visited him in Lewisburg. It was the worst prison I'd ever been in. And I've been in jails all over the country and in Puerto Rico. And I never saw anything like Lewisburg. But well, let me ask you about the federal case for a moment. I know you weren't involved, but sure. in reading about it, it seemed like the prosecutors after the trial were devastated by the result, even though they got a pretty significant sentence because... He was acquitted of the substantive murder counts. Um, and so it, it was just to, so the listeners know, he was in front of a, a judge named Judge Rucker, Norman Rucker. Um, and, and Rucker um, had this huge handlebar mustache, carried a gun on the bench. Um, a lot of, he said he after the trial, it was, him. what's that? You couldn't understand him because he mumbled. You couldn't <laughs> yeah, understand the guy. What did he say? What did the judge say? That, that's right. No, you. we were always asking the court yeah. reporter, what did he say? He said afterwards that it was the worst trial he had ever been involved in. Um, and but 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 his you know, there were acquittals in a lot of the major counts in that case. And I think people talked afterwards that that's one of the reasons he was indicted in your case, that charges were brought Absolutely. in. The, 
charges were brought in the state case because they didn't get an across the board uh, conviction in the federal case. That's exactly what happened was Janet Reno, actually, who was state attorney at the time. This is before she became an attorney general. Um, Janet Reno made the decision not this was a homicide case. This was all the witnesses in, in, in the federal case were what I would call state court witnesses. They're all the homicide guys, the CSI guys, you know, that did the blood work and the fingerprints. They're all crime scene, Metro Dade Police Department. They are not special agent FBI, special agent, you know, ATF. This was a case that was made by state agents. And the decision by Janet was made not to try the case in state court for a number of reasons. The biggest reason was in state court, as you know, um, we have depositions and pretrial discovery that's the most liberal in the country. And we take depositions of every single witness in a criminal case, which is incredibly extraordinary. And so they did not, the state attorney's office did not want to let the defense attorneys speak with and depose the witnesses in the case. So in order to sidestep that process, they indicted him federal and all of them federally. Because as you know, you can't get the sworn statements and grand jury. You can't get any of the testimony of these witnesses in advance. And so then he's he's acquitted of a bunch of counts in federal court. Of course, he's convicted of the conspiracy count and they bring a first degree murder case in state court. They finally bring this first degree murder. Tell us about it. it was. It was a case that was brought um, for the victim's name was Cecil Branch. What, what was the can you give us a little background on what the charge was? Sure. It was a first. It wasn't just first degree murder. It was first degree murder seeking the death penalty. Hmm. I mean, they went from a Rico case. They would have been OK with that. And now they're seeking the death penalty. So that means they death qualify a jury, which means you get you excuse automatically a more liberal, for lack of a better word, juror, a juror who, who is not comfortable um, giving the sentence of death to somebody, that person is excluded by law. You have to have 12 people that will, under certain circumstances, be able to render a death verdict. So in and of itself, a death qualified jury is much more prosecution oriented. So right out of the you know, right out of the fence here, we have a prosecution oriented jury. But the background for the case is Cecil Branch was um, a guy who lived in Coconut Grove. And the women sometimes, the Yahweh followers in their white robes, very respectful, they sometimes would sell goods, sell Bibles, sell or or invite people to come to the Temple of, of, of Love. Um, and they went to Coconut Grove and Cecil Branch apparently assaulted them. He pushed four of them down. He uttered obscene words and to the Yahweh women, that wasn't OK. Not to any person, man or woman, should that be OK? And they were made fun of. This was reported back, obviously, to the people at the temple. Everybody was talking about it. Everybody knew about it. Two weeks later, Cecil Branch is murdered in his own home in Coconut Grove, he is stabbed over 20 times um, and they sever his ear. And that becomes only important because one of the snitches decides to say, and we brought back the severed ear to Yahweh Ben Yahweh to prove that we were his death angels that went and made retribution for the Yahweh women in the persecution. So the state's theory was that this had to be a Yahweh situation. Mind you, the problem here and the real connection was because Yahweh reported the incident and the assault to the police. 
Ah. Had he not reported to the police, I don't know if they would have even put it together, but they might have. Um, I digress. So it became a state first degree murder death case. Um, and it was Yahweh Ben Yahweh and five co-defendants um, who were charged in the actual murder of Cecil Branch. And Jane, there were lots of other um, murders and, and mayhem sort of out there that were alleged against Yahweh and the followers. So there was a, a firebombing in Delray Beach. There was other murders. There were other things sort of swirling around there was lots of similar act evidence that the government at the state wanted to bring into our case. And that was a significant victory that the defense had pre-trial. The prosecution brought a motion before the court. We had a three-day hearing on it. And Judge Snyder, Arthur Snyder was the judge. He was a former mayor of North Miami Beach. He was a no-nonsense guy. And he said, no, 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 we're not trying all of this stuff. You indicted them for this murder, and that's what we're trying. And he said, you know, if you want to bring the other cases, bring the other cases. We can try those, too. And so those were hanging out there, um, you know, as 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 leverage almost. But Yahweh had, uh, you know, he was going to trial in all these cases. He was never there was never talk of plea for him. Right. Because, first of all, he didn't do it. So there was and there were there were never actually there were never plea discussions. I, I can honestly say it's probably the only case in my life that the government never offered anything, nor did we go asking for anything. It just wasn't on the radar. This case was going to go to trial. Now, I was fascinated by the fact that um, back in the, I guess this case was tried in the early 90s, and it's still true today. There's a lot of prejudice against women in the criminal defense bar. And not only was the lead lawyer for the lead defendant um, this pit bull, Jane Weintraub, but the lead prosecutor was a woman as well, Trudy Nowicki. So that's a, that was a rare event, um, not only today, but back certainly back then in the 90s to have two women uh, lead. It, it, it was. It was very unusual. And I mean, back then, when I would try a case, a RICO case or a CCE, continued criminal enterprise, or these big co-defendant cases that the federal government loves to bring, it would be me and like 10 of the guys like you. And I <laughs> and, you know, I would go in last and. Everybody would be schmoozing and this and that. And the judge is like, yeah. and then they see me and they're like, who's this? And then I start talking and then it's, oh, no. <laughs> so that's really what what happened. It was um, there, there was there was a difficult time for a while until finally, I would say in the late 90s, where I started having a lot of good company and other women defense lawyers. But it wasn't something that many women sought to do in the 80s and 90s. And I just always loved it. It's interesting. My two law partners are both women. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of, um, sorry to digress for a second, but I've gotten a lot of comments on the podcast about, you know, women defense lawyers and, and advice that we can give to young women defense lawyers who are trying to work into this very difficult field. Do you have any thoughts you might want here's, to give to them? Here's, here's, here's what I can say. Yeah. When I was interviewed for the state attorney's office, when I was a baby, um, one of the questions was, would you use being a woman in front of a jury? And I was aghast. <gasps> of course not. And I thought that was the A answer. Well, that was not the A answer. Hmm. So years later, fast forward, I was trying a case with Patolsky again in Newport News, Virginia. And there was a guy that just kept looking at me and I just kept looking back. And we hung that jury. And I am convinced we hung that jury from my looks and my lips. 
And you know what? That was quite all right with me and my clients. <laughs> Funny. Um, that doesn't work for me, Jane. Um, so, my, so my recommendation is be yourself. That's my recommendation. And go for it. Go for the gold because there's nothing like defending somebody. You have their life in your hands and you just go do your work. It's like a doctor. Be yourself is obviously great advice. And we'll see how Jane does that in the Yahweh Ben Yahweh trial next and for the defense. I wanted to pause here for a second and give a shout out to some amazing women criminal defense lawyers who mean a lot to me. Number one on that list is of course my wife and law partner, Mona Marcus, my other law partner, my trial partner, um, and my work wife, Margot Moss and our associate Lauren Doyle, all three amazing women criminal defense lawyers. I also wanna give a shout out to two women who have been mentors to me early in my career, Kathy Williams and Mary Barzi, both at the Federal Public Defender's Office. Kathy Williams was my boss at the uh, office and Mary Barzi was my trial partner. And both of them were amazing criminal defense lawyers. Kathy Williams fought every day for indigent defendants and is now a federal judge. And Mary Barzi, who I tried cases with all of the time during my tenure at the Federal Public Defender's Office, taught me so much how to fight in every case. One example of that was a client we were appointed to represent when I first started working at the office. His name was Tracy Barnes. Everybody called him Vitamin T. He was accused of being a pimp. And that was a three week long trial with very, very difficult facts. And Mary showed me in that case that we had to fight at every single level, on every ruling, on everything to do the best possible job we could for Vitamin T. And that was quite a case and I learned quite a bit from Mary and from Kathy during that time. I've been lucky to have lots of mentors over the years, Milton Hirsch, Edward Davis, my dad, Alan Dershowitz, Tracy Macklin, but I wanted to give a shout out to Mary Barzi and Kathy Williams, as well as my law partners and associate, lots of really, really great women criminal defense lawyers out there. Let's get back to one of the best, Jane Weintraub, and how she represented Yahweh Ben Yahweh next and for the defense. So so the, the jury selection starts for Yahweh Ben Yahweh. He is in all white robes and a white turban. I imagine people, the jurors are looking at this guy like he must be totally crazy. You're talking he is about- He's a light-skinned, a light-skinned African-American with these beautiful blue eyes. He was very good looking and incredibly charismatic. And you could see by the way that he carried himself. I mean, aside from the fact that everyone else was in awe of him in the courtroom, um, he exuded and, and just emanated the respect and he listened to everybody. He was very gentle. He was very kind um, and he was incredible. So yes, we, we started jury selection. You start jury selection with this with this man who's obviously very charismatic, as you say, but still to get a a jury, and especially you know, one that can be fair when they're death qualified. I, I understand you hired a jury consultant to help you with this. How do you get tell us about the jury selection? 
So jury selection, um, especially in a death case, and in a death case, in case people don't know, um, you have to each defendant has two lawyers as a matter of right. We were retained. We were not court appointed, but the other co-defendants or some of them were court appointed and they do have two lawyers. One is just to deal with what's called the death phase. I call it the God forbid phase. In case, God forbid, there's a guilty verdict and a conviction on the murder in the guilt innocence phase, then the jury is brought back to do the guilt phase. And they will determine um, by looking at the aggravating circumstances and weighing the mitigating circumstances that are presented by the prosecution and the defense, which scale tips in their mind the most, and then they will render a verdict recommending death or life. Um, so jury selection is incredibly intense and important. And I've always found jury selection fascinating. And I've always um, tried to hire an expert, usually Robert Hershon when I could. Um, and I've used him on, on a zillion cases um, very successfully. So I digress and I, I tell you a funny story. So we are picking a jury. We're in the second week of jury selection. It's slow because you have to do a lot of individual uh, jury selection with death cases as well. And Judge Snyder's getting a little impatient, move it along, move it along. Um, and Robert kept telling me, you know, he had this other case. He has this federal judge on his butt and he's got to get out of town and he's got to go back to Texas. I'm like, Robert, what do you want from me? The next day we have nine jurors and Robert comes in and he says, you know, I'm leaving today. Just don't forget, you know, so let's do our best. And we're having a team meeting in the morning. Like, what do you mean you're leaving today? <laughs> we don't have a jury. He says, you got nine good ones, Jane. That's all you need is one good one. <laughs> so, hey, you've got nine good jurors. I'm out of here. I looked at him like, you're kidding. And by the end of the day, Yahweh and I convinced him to stay. And he did two more days and we had a jury. Wow. But um, <laughs> nine good jurors. And he was, he brought a suitcase. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> but Jane, so, so I, I heard that the judge actually threatened to move the case to Key West, if you couldn't get a jury, um, what happened with that? Well, it was um, two weeks before Christmas, and I think nobody wanted to be there for Christmas, including the judge or mainly the judge. And he literally came into court one day. He said, listen, if you all don't pick a jury and get me a jury, we're going to Key West on Friday. And I was like, oh, my God. Now, I've tried cases in Key West with Judge King, as most of us have, and <laughs> back in the day, and that was you know, it's a fabulous, fun city. I love Key West. I love trying cases in Key West. This was not a case to go try in Key West. <laughs> you wanted a Miami jury. Yahweh Ben Yahweh down, down the street. No, 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 no. So um, we had a jury by Friday. And tell us about Miami juries. They're, they're different than anywhere else. And what kind of jurors, do you remember what kind of jurors you were looking for in a case like this? In any death, yes. And in any death case, you really just want somebody who you believe will be open-minded. I mean, in this case, the evidence was so slim. It was, in my mind, just horrific that they even brought it. And by the way, it was the same prosecutor who was cross-designated federally. She tried the Yahweh case federally and lost it. She's the one who instituted the new case. And then they cross-designated the federal prosecutor, Richard Scruggs, brought him over to the state. So it was the same prosecution team a little revengeful, um, that came to try the case in state court. And so all we wanted were people that would listen. I think that um, men would be better than women to evaluate this evidence, not get queasy. But I thought that women would relate more to the Yahweh women who were assaulted and accosted. But I didn't want to give them a motive 
for it being tied to the Yahweh. So it was very torn. And so the state's case is that this man, Rogier, committed the murders, but did so at the direction of Yahweh ben Yahweh. And, and they flip Rozier to testify against uh, your client and the others. It's, it's interesting that they flip the guy who actually did the shooting, who did the murder. Um, he did four beheadings. This, is, this was an evil, crazy guy, Robert Rozier. He was their main, he was not their only informant. He was their main informant. And we had, of course, we have a team of investigators, the defense, and before trial, we sent the investigator. And by the way, the main witness is Robert Rozier. Um, can I tell you about him for a oh, minute? Please. Um, Robert Rozier was a former NFL player. He played for the St. Louis Cardinals, um, and he actually played in like six or seven games. I mean, he could have had a wonderful life, but instead he became this crazy person. He, um, he went to college in California. Our investigator tracked down his old college roommate and comes back and calls us and says, you will not believe what his nickname is. I'm like, tell me. He's like, Lion Bob. Oh. No way. You can't make that up. Lion Bob. Does it get any better? Does it get any better? Then I cannot wait to cross-examine this guy. You could Lion cross for hours on Lion Bob, Jane. Uh, and we did. We crossed him for two days. Um, so Robert Rozier committed seven murders. He's the government and state's main witness. He admitted to all the murders. He said that he did it at the direction of Yahweh ben Yahweh, or he would have been killed. And he pleads to second that was brought down to manslaughter. And he sentenced to 22 years back in the day, meant a lot of time off. And he only served 10 years. And then he was released. And then where did he go? Nice epilogue. He went back to California. And because he's such an honorable guy, he forged and wrote bad checks, oh. bad checks. Three strikes and you're out in California. This was the guy's 10th. And guess what? He's doing 25 to life on bad checks. That's wow. Cool. Karma, <laughs> karma, baby. Um, so lying Bob testifies. Here's a guy who, I mean, he admittedly was in the temple. Um, and so. And he knew a lot of intricate details of things that went on as in any organization that people would not want made public. And one of the things that people may not realize is that in Florida back in the 80s and 90s, when you were sentenced to death, it wasn't by lethal injection. You went to the electric chair and it was a gruesome, gruesome way to um, have a sentence. Um, it was just terrible. And one of the themes that I saw from the defense was that Rozier traded the electric chair for the witness chair, which I thought was a wonderful way to put it um, and, and really must have resonated with the jury. It, 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 it did. It, it obviously did. How did that theme play out? We'll find out in For the Defense next. I love that line, trading the electric chair for the witness chair. Themes are so important in trial. Prosecutors have it easy, right? Their themes are always greed or evil or murder or money. It's easy for them to come up with a theme, but the defense needs to come up with a theme that they can grab the jurors' attention, that the jurors can latch onto, and that can be used throughout trial. I represented Buju Banton once, a famous reggae star. Our theme in that case was a con artist set up a recording artist. That was the first words out of my mouth in opening statement. 
you need almost a newspaper headline, uh, something that the New York Post or the New York Daily News would use. And better yet, if you can put it in terms of a trilogy with an alliteration. This case is about snitches, suckers, and sellouts. You get the idea. You want to have a theme that jumps off the page, that you can use throughout the trial, and that the jury will love. Let's see what happens with this theme next and for the defense. You know, there were just so many tricks and and minefields to avoid. Um, One of them being, you know, of course, one of the biggest questions, as always, as you asked Tom Ezra is, you know, do you put your client on? And I always get nervous when I don't put a client on the witness stand, even though the judge obviously instructs the jury, you're not to take this, you know, against him. He's got a Fifth Amendment right and nobody has to be a witness against themselves. You always wonder. I always wonder what are they really thinking? Aren't they thinking, well, if it was me, I would get up there and say I didn't do it. But we didn't want to do that because, number one, that would have brought in the charges and all the other murders. And that would have been a disaster because where there's smoke, there's fire in a lot of people's minds, no pun intended, from the Delray Beach fire. And also, just the allegations themselves are so onerous that it gives you guilt by association. So, of course, the other problem was that he had testified in the federal case. And, you know... I will tell you, I'm sure um, I might get some flack from this, but Yahweh Benyahweh, state your name, is is how it went in federal court. And Yahweh went on for six pages (laughs) of a transcript. It was like, I am the omnipotent. I am the son of God. I am God, the son. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Not a good witness. So we decided, you know, early on, you know, we were going to discuss with Yahweh. It was his right. But we certainly recommended most strenuously um, that he should not elect to testify on his behalf. And he didn't. But, you know, Rozier knew, for example, after Cecil Branch was killed, there was a lot of rumbling in the temple. And people knew. And there were followers that talked about it. It was in the news. So when people saw even on the news, you know, that this guy that has assaulted these Yahweh women, of course, this was a concern to Yahweh. So there were discussions. Of course, that doesn't mean that he ordered him killed. But, you know, there were discussions of what's going on. And so there were other followers as well that turned and betrayed Yahweh ben Yahweh. I mean, David, the Yahweh following went so far. There were law enforcement people. There were police officers that were Yahweh followers. There were doctors, lawyers, uh, there's such a wide array of just like in the community of people um, that were followers of Yahweh. And, and and did a lot of them show up to trial? Did a lot of them come and, and support Yahweh at trial wearing the robes and the turbans and everything else? Wearing the robes, yes. Um, and, you know, a lot of the followers did come. The other people, you know, obviously there were corrections officers that were Yahweh followers. I mean, we knew their names, obviously. I would never shame them. Because that would be a shame to them. And that's the unfortunate part that it was, you know, we didn't want to call them out or call attention to anybody. Obviously, they're working in the court system and they didn't want to be part of a trial. But I, I share this with you to say that there there are there are people all, from all walks of life that are Yahweh followers. As a matter of fact, our expert witness, um, one of um, had a severe 
fracture on his ankle that was almost permanent. I mean, he had a disability that he couldn't run, he couldn't walk, and he had a chip off of his ankle. And we wanted to find the best, of course, expert doctors that we could find to corroborate this. So we found um, from Brigham and Harvard, went to Harvard uh, Medical School, and he was a doctor in Boston, um, very, very successful, incredible CV resume. We put him on the witness stand. He explains all about um, Jesse's ankle and the injury and how he could have never run or walked or done whatever he's supposed to do. And they never asked, they never thought, and I will share with you now, he was a Yahweh follower. Your expert witness was a Yahweh follower and they didn't cross him on whether he was and a follower they, of Yahweh? In that position, they never asked. Wow, wow. Insane. insane. So, 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 you know, there were lots of interesting things that, that went on. I mean, Yahweh's theory was, of I mean, the state's theory was, of course, that, you know, if Yahweh said, go do something, you know, it wasn't a recommendation. It's a direct order. And when these murders started happening, it, you know, the government's theory was this was no coincidence. A couple of things that happened in the middle of trial that were that were extremely funny um, to defense lawyers, because you're working, you know, you're in court from nine to six. You get out of court and your day first starts. You, <laughs> right. have, to, you have to review the transcript from during the day that you're going to get at 10 o'clock that night. You're going to go over everything with your team until 12 or one until two or three, you're figuring out your cross exam for the next morning. I mean, it's a crazy schedule being in trial. Insane. Uh, right. As you well know. So things that just get, you know, that I remember, you know, Wendell Graham, for example, he went on, he was a defense lawyer of one of the defendants that was acquitted in the federal case. Of course, they brought him over to state court. We'll see how you like this. Now I'm going to try you for first degree murder and see death. And Ahinadad, his client, there was always something off about Ahinadad. And he was tried in the federal case with the firebombing. And we thought he was nuts, to tell you the truth. But, you know, Judge Recker was having none of that in the federal case. And I guess it didn't pan out. But in the middle of a day of trial, and nobody else really in the courtroom knew what was going on. And Ahinadad just screams out, firebomb, firebomb, that's my secret. Oh, my. You guys must have been dying. <laughs> and the lawyers and Yahweh was like, oh. and I just started coughing and I spilled a cup of something and I asked for a break and, you know, that was that. But I mean, it was a funny moment. And, and, and you know, the people that we tried the case with. So Wendell Graham was a defense lawyer and then he became a judge. And so he was a sitting judge with Arthur Snyder. Um, that's that's an interesting. Um, so you had this you you had to manage this cast of characters, Jane. It, it, it's interesting. A lot of the lawyers we've spoken to in the podcast, it's a single defendant um, with a single lawyer or a team. In this case, it's not just your client and your team. When you're representing the lead, it, control may be the wrong word, but you have to make sure you're quarterbacking sort of everybody so that defendant number three doesn't undercut defendant number one and two. And so you're not just dealing with your client and your defense, you're sort of quarterbacking the whole group. That That's exactly right. And having to make compromises because they also, the defense lawyers are representing individuals who are, who are you know, the death penalty is on the table. So they want to do whatever they want to do and they don't want to listen to what's better for us as opposed to if there's an issue with them. So there's, there is a, I'm a big, team player and I am a big team believer in building teams, especially in complicated cases, whether it's a murder case or a mortgage fraud case. I mean, when you're a team, you're a team. 
Um, and we managed to navigate that really well with witnesses. We divided up um, a bunch of cross-examinations because obviously I didn't want to do all of them because I didn't want to be perceived as the one that, like Yahweh, had to um, detract every single piece of evidence and throw it away. Um, so it was it was interesting and, and it was it was difficult and we'd never worked together as a group. Um, and that's often what happens in, in these cases. Right. But one of the you know, it's interesting you talk about teamwork and setting up a team in these trials. What I have found is that in these multi-defendant trials, if one of the lower defendants starts not playing as a team, pointing the finger at the others, yeah. He thinks that that's going to go well for them and doesn't care about the others. And it typically just goes bad for everybody once the team sort of fractures and breaks up. So I think a lot of times people don't realize how important it is to present a joint defense at these trials. Totally. And, and it has to be cohesive. And it really does have to be cohesive. Um, the defendants themselves were very smart except for an attack, because I just don't know what his story was. Um, but they understood what was going on. They were helpful. Um, one of the lawyers that we had on our team was a Yahweh follower, um, was Wendy Rush. She was a law professor. Oh, I lost you. Hold on. All right, we had a little bit of an internet problem, but we're back, and Jane was telling us about Wendy Rush, one of the co defendants lawyers being part of the Yahweh group. She, um, yeah, she's amazing. Um, as a matter of fact, I reached out to her last night. Um, Wendy is incredibly smart. She's a law professor. She's a lawyer in Texas. Um, and she is a big part of the nation of Yahweh. And she was in the federal trial. So she was a tremendous resource for us. Um, and she was lovely with everybody. So she was a, a big help. And um, closing argument were were very unusual in this case. Why? Um, I had known Trudy Novicki for a very long time. Um, and I was in the prosecutor's office. I was a baby prosecutor. She was a big shot head of organized crime. And, you know, I always just, I, I always was intimidated by her, to, so to say, if I was ever intimidated by someone. Um, and she had this vengeful, no holes barred. She was get a conviction at all costs. And I think she didn't care. She and Kevin DeGregory, um, was the, who was the other prosecutor on the case um, in state court, Kevin and she divided up the closing argument. And they were talking about things that were not evidence. They were- Angry, you know, you, right? you draw, hmm? Angry in a way. You draw, they were angry. That, that's a very good word. Did that anger work or did it backfire? We'll find out in For the Defense next. I've never thought that prosecutors getting angry is a good look. I remember a trial that I did where in my closing argument, I listed 10 reasonable doubts. I like to do that, make a chart of what I think are the 10 top reasonable doubts in the trial. And I put it on a big board and at the end of my closing, I leave it in front of the prosecutor's table and I challenge the prosecutor to answer the questions of reasonable doubt. And most prosecutors just put the chart away and never deal with it. But in this one case, the prosecutor had about 15 minutes in his rebuttal closing and he went through the 10 
questions that I raised. And he realized at the end of those 10 questions that he was out of time and couldn't get to his closing. And he was so angry that he took the chart and he threw it at our desk. And my two trial partners, Mark Seidels and Robin Kaplan and I in that case, sort of flung ourselves back in a big dramatic moment. The jury was laughing and the prosecutor was standing there having just thrown a chart at us. That client was acquitted. And I've just never thought that prosecutors getting angry serves them well. Let's see what happens and whether it serves the prosecutors well in the Yahweh Ben Yahweh trial in For the Defense next. I think that they knew this was their last chance and they wanted to be vindicated for bringing these cases. And I'm sure in their minds they believed in it. I mean, I have to believe that they believed in what they were doing. Um, But I have to tell you that it was such a vengeance in that closing argument that when one of the lawyers on our side, one of the defense lawyers gets up, Penny Burke, and she literally starts talking about Robert Rozier. And she holds a get out of jail free card that had been blown up 20 times like this huge poster. I love it. Everybody just, you know, everybody needed a little levity. Some people got angry like she was making fun. But, you know, in trial, sometimes you just need to laugh. Everybody. And it breaks it. It breaks the moment really perfectly, (laughs) especially when the prosecutor is so angry. I I have found that when prosecutors get vengeful and angry, it always backfires. The prosecutors who get up and say, listen, you've listened to the evidence. You decide. We believe we've made the case. If they undersell, they typically do much better than when they oversell and get angry, especially when the defense lawyers are doing things like blowing up, get out of jail free cards. (laughs) I think you started out your closing Um, with a line that I just love, Robert Rozier is the murderer. And he was, everybody agreed that he was. And for him to get the deal he got and for you to make the case about him uh, worked out perfectly. So the jury goes out. um, It's a first degree murder case, death qualified jury. You must have expected that the jury's going to be out for days uh, when when they go out. We did. And of course, you know, the longer normally, I mean, you know, it just goes to show you how silly we defense lawyers are sometimes. We usually think, I usually think as a defense lawyer, the longer they're out, the better, because at least they're talking about the stuff. They're not just going with what the government says and they're right. not just convicting our guy. You know, they're thinking about what we presented and what what, what we did. That's good. So the longer, the better. But surely after such a, um, a contentious trial, not that they're not all contentious, but this was a very hard fought and it was in the press every day. It was just awful. You know, the cameras in the courtroom, which make it a circus to begin with. Um, so we hadn't eaten. We get out of there at seven o'clock and nobody had eaten all day long. And I'm like, you know what? Let's just go. There's a Cuban restaurant, Skina de Tay House on East Street I used to go to. I said, yeah, I'm starving. Let's just go eat. We have plenty of time. We go, all of us, so like 14 of us, we go, we meet over on A Street. It's like five minutes from the courthouse. And as soon as we ordered, as soon as we were, I mean, we are not out of the jury deliberations and they have to pick a foreman. So you also figure that takes time. It was like an hour and a half. Wow. Like, oh my God, we lost. How could we have lost? Oh my God. And I, I have to tell you, David, it was horrible. I mean, that ride, but I was so scared that it was going to be a guilty verdict. And thank God, obviously, you know that it was not. And we hear my two favorite words, not guilty. And I am just, I burst out crying. Steve, my trial partner, Petolsky, burst out crying. Yahweh, we hugged Yahweh. He's in the middle. 
And um, did he cry? It was incredible. Hmm? Did he cry? Steve, did absolutely. No, did Yahweh yes. Ben Yahweh cry? No, but Steve did. Steve always cries with me at acquittals. So <laughs> it's amazing because, so, you know, you, you say Yahweh didn't cry. A lot of times the lawyers take these things more than the client. The client's looking at the death penalty and he's sort of stoic and you guys are hysterical. Remember who he is. He's Yahweh Ben Yahweh. And he is cool hand Luke. He is, when the jury's coming in, he's, Jane, stick whatever happens, I bless you. I thank you. I'll never forget that. And I, I it was even worse. And, I, you know, the, the angst that I had before hearing the verdict, because he's telling me before the verdict, it's okay. Whatever it is, you did an amazing job defending me. And I thank you. And I bless you. And it was unbelievable to hear that from him. Wow. And, so after, so there was a big eruption in the courtroom and the judge lets the jury go and tells everybody to wait. And I figured, oh, he's going to like nail me for something I did in closing. He's got, you know, I'm getting in contempt again. Who knows what's happening here? And so everybody leaves. And he said, I just want you to know what the jury foreman wrote on a question. The jury foreman wrote right before he, they came out. When are they going to go after the real murderers? So, Ms. Novicki and Mr. DeGregory, I give that to you. Because there are also other pending murder cases in Dade County and in Pittsburgh. So, wow. where go after the real murderers? Uh, David, I, didn't, I was apoplectic. I didn't know what to say. And we just all held our straight faces like, yeah, you should. You got to frame that note for your office. Uh, right? what, a, what a crazy note. So there's all these other cases hanging around. Do they do they go forward with the other cases against Yahweh? So what happens? I mean, could you imagine being offered credit time served on a first degree murder case? And the client, Enoch, I'll never forget it. Enoch Israel said, I'm not pleading to anything, not even for credit time served. And Steve and I are like, listen, Enoch, it does. I mean, what does it mean in your world? What does it mean? I mean, I don't want to take a chance. God forbid that some jury could find you guilty. I mean, we'll do the same thing, and, but who not, juries are always a crapshoot, you never know. I was scared for him. And he, took, he was steadfast, he wasn't taking a plea. And finally, the last day when we said he's not taking a plea, we'll send him for trial, finally Trudy Nalpras the case. Wow, so Yahweh, Ben Yahweh has to serve his federal time. So he um, served federal time in horrible maximum facility prison. It was awful until he was diagnosed with stage four prostate cancer. He was about to be, he came up for parole and he lost already. Um, and he had served over 10 years and, um, and hard time. And I did petition the court in federal court, um, on a compassionate release, which now we all know what that is, um, to let him go home to die. And he did. He, he went home and he had, um, two or three months at the house in Oklahoma. You say now we all know, but when you filed that motion for compassionate release, judges, I mean, it was a miracle to get him out. Almost never happened back then. Now it's more uh, standard, but back then it was very, very hard to get someone out on compassionate release, but the judge yeah. lets yeah. him out. Um, what's he like when he gets out? The same, calm. He, he was a gentleman, and he was a gentle man. He was his he had the most incredible library um, in his home and he was so proud of it. And he read voraciously and he sat outside 
there was a big lake in his backyard and he would sit outside and he fed the birds and we would sit and talk. I'd visit him like once a week. Um, and we just talked and Amazing. he was a great, a great guy. He was a I'm great man and he was a great client because he trusted me. He spoke with me and. Amazing. Yeah. So one of the things that I've seen recently, um, Yahweh followers in the news, and I just have to bring it up because it's pretty crazy. I saw uh, there's a Yahweh follower behind Trump at his rallies. Well, I don't know that Trump knew that. Um, yeah, it was um, Mauricio Woodside. Um, and I recognized him. And I remember I, mean, I started like a whole operator phone chain, like, oh, my God, you have to see who's on this. And I like texted and emailed everybody in the group. And I'm like, do you see who's like blacks for Trump? He was right behind the president at two different rallies in Arizona and somewhere else. And then they must have made him like their poster boy, you know, Trump did, blacks for Trump. And he did a commercial. I mean, I, I, craziness. Just, so, I mean, this this case had no ends to craziness. Um, <laughs> Seriously. So, so I guess the Yahweh... Um, religion or the Yahweh reach is still out there, even though Yahweh has passed away. It, it, it is. I mean, hundreds of thousands of followers still contribute and observe the four feasts, as in the Jewish religion, the Feast of Passover. Um, we have Sukkot. They have the Feast of Tabernacles. They, they align themselves, the Black Hebrew Israelites, very similarly, and their dietary laws um, with being kosher as well, not mixing meat with milk, um, which is a health thing anyway. Um, you know, there are a lot of similarities. And so they're still very prominent um, in Canada. They were ostracized here, obviously from Miami, from all the publicity, and also in Atlanta. In Atlanta, they had two hotels. The Barclay Hotel, one of the main hotels downtown, um, was a Yahweh hotel. And I don't know if that's still in existence, but but the nation of Yahweh is still in existence and they still have um, a significant following. They had a TV show for a while every day. Um, so, Jane, what what is the I mean, this was a first degree murder trial um, front page of every newspaper at the time. What's the main takeaway from the case now? I mean, is, is there a main takeaway from this first degree murder trial? As a lawyer, as a person, it's as a person, it's it's always hard. I mean, Yahweh is also he was a father. He had children. He was a husband, you know, and of course, I relate to that being a mom. And I can't imagine the humiliation of being on trial for murder in front of your family, in front of your loved ones. And he had the additional onerous of 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 his followers and, and his congregants, so to say. Um, the takeaway is prepare, prepare, prepare as in any trial, because that's the only way to win is preparation um, and then more preparation until you just are falling asleep, because that's what carries the day in any trial. Well, it's interesting you say that because now most of your cases are, are complex white collar cases. Um, what's harder to try, the complex white collar trial or the first degree murder trial? A hundred percent the white collar cases. Why <laughs> you ask? <laughs> because the clients, I have to tell you that the clientele is very different. Um, I find that the white collar defendants, well, so many of them are business people. They're used to being in charge. They're used to being in control. And now 
they have to relinquish that control to the lawyer, to the le- their legal mouthpieces, and they don't like that. I don't blame them. I would feel the same way. I am a bit of a control freak, as you know. So I wouldn't want to relinquish control so readily, but it's, it's difficult. And you're on an equal playing field mentally, socially, usually with, with those clients. And I think that makes it more difficult because you really have to win them over more and prove to them that you are doing everything in every grain of your body that you can to get them out of this mess any way you can. And it is, it's a fight at all costs on both sides. And there's nothing that I wouldn't do staying in my lane (laughs) that I'm allowed to do. I mean, I will walk to the line. I'll never walk over it, but I will go to that line every time for my client. And I love doing what I do. And it shows, and you did for Yahweh Ben Yahweh. What an incredible, incredible win to to win that case with the atmosphere in Miami, with everything going against you, with the death qualified jury. Just incredible, Jane. So I just want to thank you for for talking with me today. And what a great, wild case. Thank you so much for having me. What a crazy case. Yahweh Ben Yahweh in Miami in the 1980s first-degree murder death penalty, and Jane Weintraub walks him out the door. That put Jane Weintraub on the national stage. She became a commentator on CNN and other stations. She started handling huge cases all around the country, including white-collar cases. And interesting side note, she ended up marrying a good friend, John Sale, who was one of the Watergate prosecutors and is a big-time criminal defense lawyer himself. Some other fun facts from the epilogue of the case. The prosecutor, Trudy Novicki, ended up marrying the lead detective, Rex Remley. Um, Janet Reno ended up, of course, becoming the attorney general. And she brought along with her Kevin DeGregory, one of the prosecutors from the Yahweh Ben Yahweh trial. Other defense lawyers from the case, Alan Leesfield, became a judge, is now a mediator. And so that case itself is still very much a part of Miami history and Miami culture. And as you heard, even Trump had a Yahweh Ben Yahweh follower in Blacks for Trump uh, throughout his commercials and his rallies when he was uh, running unsuccessfully in 2020. So crazy case, uh, unbelievable result. And we'll have more of those great cases coming up next week in For the Defense.